Well, good evening, and welcome to the Central Library, and I'm Carla Hayden, CEO, and you know who just joined me. <laughs> oh, yeah, come on. Well, I have here on the paper that it says it's a very special edition of our Writers Live series, and you can see why. Because tonight we are so honored to have a remarkable person who has dedicated his life to public service. He has a very busy schedule, as you can imagine, and so we are just delighted that he could take some time and be with us tonight to discuss his new book, United. And if you haven't had a chance to get a copy, the Ivy Bookshop is selling it, so please do. This is a wonderful turnout for Baltimore on a rainy night, and... <laughs> We've had, so thank you. And we are so delighted that to have special guests, our board member, of course, Senator Paul Sarbanes, uh, Health Commissioner Lena Wynn, and the president of Johns Hopkins University, Mr. Ron Daniels. And we couldn't do what we do, bringing notable authors and people with different points of view to the Pratt Library if we didn't have you, our donors and supporters and users. Now, we have a complete list of upcoming events. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr. is coming on March the 7th, and so get a copy of Compass. This is our commercial right now. But back to our special guest the United States Senator from New Jersey. He attended Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar before earning his law degree at Yale University, and he became New Jersey's first African-American Senator after winning a special election to fill the term of the late Senator Frank Lindenberg, making him the 21st person in the United States history to ascend directly from mayor to U.S. Senate. In his new book, United, he draws on personal experience to issue what I think you'll find when you read the book, a stirring call to reorient our nation and our politics around the principles of compassion and solidarity. So I know you're excited to hear from him. So please welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, Senator Cory Booker. Hello, everybody. Hello. I I am I am thrilled to be back in Baltimore. This is one of my favorite cities. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the of the toughness, of the strength of spirit, of the humble heroes, really, that are in my home city of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, this is one of our great historic cities. It's a city that screams to this country. Uh, the truth of America, which is that we are a diverse place. We are a place where it is capable of tremendous heights and that we're a place that if it does not extend courageous love, uh, where we can see often, uh, the failures of humanity. I believe in this creative cauldron that is Baltimore. I believe the years ahead in this city, this city will be a, a, 
uh, uh, my belief, will return again to being a great city on the hill that teaches America about what's possible when good people come together with love and courage. And, and so I, I'm excited to have a conversation, but I, I, I'm, I was asked to speak for a little while in the beginning, and I'm going to tell uh, a little bit about why I'm so happy to be uh, coming to communities like this to talk about issues that are very important to me. And then I'm hoping we can have a bit of a dialogue back and forth where no holds barred. You can ask any question you want. Uh, if my mother put somebody up to asking me why I'm still single, I'll even answer that. Um, um, but I do want to thank this institution, um, which has a history to me that is so incredible. Libraries, most people don't know, used to be places of rarefied air where only certain people were welcome, where they didn't even have books out in the open. You had to request books. But this library really was on the cutting edge of America, of understanding that libraries are institutions that bring all of America together. They are really democratic institutions. And this institution has evolved with the times. And as I was talking earlier with folks here, that now not only is it a place for reading and learning and research, but it also has become a community center where I'm told everything from legal services are being provided here to helping to deal with food deserts. It's really become what its mission was, was to be a democratic force uh, in, our, in, in a community. And I'm just grateful to be invited here to this hallowed hall, to this sacred space. So thank, thanks to the library. So I wrote this book really because I was blown away by um, how when I was campaigning for the Senate, now I was leaving my city and I was traveling all over the state of New Jersey. And whether I was in urban spaces or suburban spaces, the wealthiest of communities, some of the wealthiest census tracts in our country to the poorest communities, everybody seemed to lament to me about the divisions that were in our society. And ask me, how can we possibly uh, uh, deal with the divisions, the divisiveness, and also the rancor and acerbic nature of our civic spaces? And it, it seemed to me a little surprising that it was such a common sentiment, especially because I felt that my experiences, my experiences in my lifetime spoke to a different America. You have to understand, I was raised by two parents who would look at me and, and communicate to me that I was a physical manifestation of a conspiracy of love. That this country that I inherited, um, my parents would tell me that I would I drank deeply from wells of freedom and liberty and opportunity that I didn't dig. I ate from lavish banquet tables prepared for me by my ancestors. And they would challenge me that I could just sit back consuming all these blessings, getting dumb, fat, and happy, or that I could remember from whence I came and metabolize those blessings to continue the spirit of this country. Now, my parents were not one of these folks who had just this optimistic, happy, uh, Pollyannish view of America. In fact, they understood that you have to face, you can't homogenize or whitewash American history, that the greatness of this country isn't the absence of wretchedness, of bigotry, of hate, of challenges. The greatness of this country is our overcoming it as a people. And the ideals, the ideals of this country should be fueling us forward. As James Baldwin said in one of my all-time favorite books called The Fire Next Time, 
Uh, at the, uh, he, he wrote a tough, emotionally painful book. But at the end of that book, those last two pages, I think, are two of the greatest pages in American literature where he begins to talk about, okay, now given this, I'm asking you for us to ascend as a country. And to paraphrase him, he says, I know what I'm asking you is impossible, but in today's day and age, the impossible is the least we can demand. And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general, and American Negro history in particular, for it is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. Now, I think our American history is that testimony. We're a country that was not founded because we were all alike. In fact, we were very different. We weren't founded on a common language. We weren't founded on a common religion. We weren't founded on a common allegiance to kings and queens. We were folks that were beginning to populate this earth from all over the planet. And we understood, even when our founding documents, which were very imperfect. I know people want to herald how perfect our founding documents, but they can't be perfect when our founding documents refer to Native Americans as savages or refer to African Americans as fractions of human beings or don't refer to women at all. But they were perfect within them. There was perfection in the spirit and the ideals that they called forth onto this country. In fact, called for forth into the world. This, this wonderful conception that this country would be founded in aspirational ideals, but essential within our document, essential within those documents, was this idea of that conspiracy of love, that we need each other. If you look at the very Declaration of Independence, it spoke to a declaration of interdependence when it says that we pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. This idea that we need each other, this idea that we are dependent upon each other, that we're interdependent, it harkens back to the ideals of so many generations of Americans from many different lands, many different faiths. It's that Jewish song from the High Holidays, Ki Beit Ti, Beit Tefillah, L'Chohomim. It's that aspiration that my house will be a house of prayer for many nations. It's the Christian faith that says, whenever two or three are gathered together in his name, this idea that when you bring that unity, you bring forth the divine. It's a very hallmark of this country that says, E Pluribus Unum. To the African tradition that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Now, I talk about love a lot. And, and sometimes people say, you know, what are you doing as a United States senator preaching all this love stuff? You know, how's that going to help you pass some legislation? Um, uh, look, I hear enough people who preach other than love. And I feel like we need to have a better, mature conversation about love. Love, to me, it really goes to the core of what our calling is. You know, people say patriotism all the time, but patriotism in itself is love of country. But what people kind of forget is that you can't love your country unless you love your country men and women, too. We, we, we preach tolerance in this country as if that is some kind of vaunted, noble aspiration that we will be a tolerant society. I reject it. I preach that we have, we shouldn't be aspiring to tolerance. That tolerance is really a lazy, cynical state of mind that says, I'm stomaching your right to be different. And if you disappear off the face of the earth, I'm no better or worse off because I was just tolerating you anyway. The aspiration should be to that deeper, richer patriotism in which we strive to go beyond tolerance to love where we recognize that I need you. 
that our destinies are interwoven, that yes, our differences matter, but our country matters more. And so the challenge my parents had when they were bringing me up was they wanted to un us to understand the profound connections that we have to one another. My father told me as a boy, he said, look, I am a hardworking man. And my dad didn't have to tell me that. You all remember again what James Baldwin said, children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And, and the models that I had growing up were hard work, two hardworking adults always around me. When a snow day hit and I was in first grade and I was so happy doing my snow dance that I would see the first sound I would hear in the morning would be at five o'clock or earlier, my father shoveled in the driveway so he could be the first person at work. But as much as my father wanted to model for me these ideals of self-reliance and rugged individualism, he also knew that that was not who we are as a country in total, that rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon. Rugged individualism didn't map the human genome. Rugged individualism didn't build our roads and bridges, that we are here because of the ideals of interdependency. And so my parents told me, look, know where you've come from. My father was born in Jim Crow, North Carolina, and he was born poor. And if he was here right now, he would heckle me and say, don't you tell those people from Baltimore I was poor. Tell them the truth. I was po, P-O, I couldn't afford the other two letters. I, I was a po' boy from North Carolina. And my father said that, son, he, he born to a single mama, his mama couldn't take care of him. He was raised for his, by his grandma for a while. Then she couldn't take care of him. And it was people in that community that would not let him fail. And, and, and they wrapped around him and, and put a roof over his head, food on the table, raised him up. And when he college came around, he, he didn't think of going to college. There was no tradition in his family of it. But it was people in that community said that you were going to go. And they said, hey, you're not only going to go, but you're going to complain. My father said, I couldn't afford it, that we're going to make sure that we pay your first semester's tuition so then you can get a job at North Carolina Central University and work your way through college. And they took a collection at a church back in the days that a semester's tuition could fit in a church collection plate. <laughs> we can talk about that later if you want. <laughs> what did my parents see and what? And when they got to college, both my mom and my dad, I'll tell you, I don't know what it is about moms. You all have a power that even when your children get to be like 40 years old, you can still make them feel like they're 12. I was invited to go, I was the commencement speaker. Talk about a guy who thought he had something going on. I was a commencement speaker at my mom's university, Fisk University, when, on the 50th reunion, her 50th reunion. And I get there and everybody's treating me like I'm somebody special. They're like, oh, Mr. Mayor, I was a mayor of Newark then. So he, I was at the banquet table and all this. And my mom comes over to me and she says, get up. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> she goes, get up, boy, get up. And she starts pulling me out of my chair and I'm pulling back. I'm like, mom. <laughs> I'm the mayor. <laughs> and, and she starts taking me to tables and say, you need to meet this person. They let our voter registration drives when it was dangerous to do so. You all know Goodman, Cheney, Schwarner. This is the person that led our boycott to the stores that wouldn't serve black, was being threatened with being expelled from school because of their rabble rousing. She kept taking me to table to table as if she was saying, pay attention. You may not know these people. They may not be our blood relation, but there is a spiritual tie. You owe them a debt. This is the conspiracy of love. When my parents got to Washington, D.C. after college, that's where they met. And, and my dad had the luck and fortune 
to marry my mom. My mom had the charity and sympathy to marry my dad. And, 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 and they said they witnessed before their eyes. I don't care in America if you are, if you are a woman, if you're Irish, if you're black. There was a time that corporate America didn't want you. And, and, and there was a movement going on in Washington, D.C. through the Urban League to get companies to hire qualified blacks for the first time. My parents said, this is the conspiracy of love. They became two of black, IBM's first black employees, executives. When they got the chance to move up to New Jersey, they, 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 they found that in northern New Jersey, a, town called, a county called Bergen County, they wouldn't show blacks homes in most of those counties. And so they went to, they went to a place called the Fair Housing Council, and they set up a sting operation, a volunteer couple posed as my parents. After my parents were told the house was sold, the white couple came and found out the house was still for sale, put a bid on the house, contracts were drawn up. On the day of the closing, the white couple didn't show up. My father did, and a volunteer lawyer. Now, now you all know nothing worthwhile is easy. So when my father and this volunteer lawyer walk in, the real estate agent gets confronted by the lawyer for violation of fair housing law. And the real estate agent is so angry, he stands up and punches my dad's lawyer and then sigs a big dog on my dad. Now, I tell you, every time my dad would tell this story, the dog would get bigger. <laughs> Somehow in the span of my lifetime, it went from Toto to Cujo. <laughs> but this is how I came to be. Growing up in a community that my father used to call us the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. But my dad would look at me and say things like, boy, don't you dare walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. That's where that comes from. All that came through for me to be there. Now, so when I decided to write this book, I wanted to talk about that conspiracy of love. And I went back and started doing research. And, 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 and it was amazing to me the research I did on myself and the research I did on all the people that were a part of that conspiracy of love. And then I began to see things. This chapter in the book starts off with this profoundly, I mean, I think that these are going to be some of the, the best sentence ever written in American literature. I say that sarcastically because the first sentence of the chapter is, I hate Henry Louis Gates. That's the first sentence. Now, I say it facetiously because uh, Professor Gates is a friend of mine. Um, I love the man. But I started this chapter about the conspiracy of love saying I hate him because one day Henry Louis Gates calls me up and says, hey, Corey, I got this great opportunity for you, man. I got this show called Finding Your Roots, and I want you to be on Finding Your Roots. And I'm like, no, man, are you serious? He's like, yes. And I'm getting all excited because now I can trace the roots and the history of my family. I'm excited. And he's pumping me up. He goes, yeah, I wanted you because I wanted an up and coming politician. I wanted somebody that's got a great future. I'm like, yeah, I've got a future. And, and he keeps pumping me up. And then I realize that he always pairs you in this show with somebody else. And so suddenly I say, hey, Skip, um, who are you pairing me with? And then he says it real slow just to stick it to me. He says, John Lewis. Now, some of you are understanding what that means, basically. It basically means he's going to do a national TV show where he pairs Superman with Jimmy Olsen. And so the, the comparison, the, the, the show, they do little bios of each person. So in effect, this is how it went. 
the splendiferous voice announcer goes, John Lewis, hero of the civil rights movement, standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge with love and decency in his heart, nonviolent protests staring down Alabama state troopers, tear gas, billy clubs. He literally bled the southern soil red for freedom. And then it goes to me. Cory Booker, riding his big wheel <laughs> in suburban New Jersey. <laughs> he takes a turn too sharp. He falls off, skins his knee. He bleeds the northern soil red <laughs> for big wheel riders everywhere. <laughs> so... So in this show, it was a humbling experience. I went and, and, and met John Lewis and, and just had tears in my eyes as I'm walking through John, with John Lewis through a civil rights museum. And I never walked through a museum with a man where the pictures they have up, he would stop and say, oh, that was me, Marshall. And he started telling me who all the people were around him. And I'm like pulling out my iPhone. There's a picture of me in here. <laughs> so... What was interesting to me about, about it is that Skip decided to solve family mysteries. He, he told me, black folks, unless you are straight, an immigrant from, from Africa, you have a lot of blood mixed in you. And in fact, he said to me, a lot of whites have a lot more mixed blood than they even know. And, and he actually had a, a mystery in my family was my grandfather, my mom's dad, who is very much lighter skinned than all his siblings. And, and there was always talk that he, he actually felt like he carried a shame, he would write in his book, that there was suspicion that his daddy wasn't his biological daddy. And he had some speculation about who it might be and left enough clues that Skip Gates went back to Louisiana and started asking people to test their DNA. And he literally scraped somebody's DNA first try. And actually, it is a direct match. It's my mom's first cousin. And then he informs this gracious white family that, by the way, you are directly related to this brother up in Newark. <laughs> and, and we had a reunion on TV as he brought together folks that I would have walked past and not recognized them, not seen them for who they are. Family. But what more powerful thing to me is that what Skip revealed to me is while blood may seem like family to all of us, the spiritual ties that unite us go deeper than that. I called up the people who helped my family move into Harrington Park. I, I wanted to know about this story, not just from my parents, because I couldn't believe that when my father would tell the story towards the end of his life, that when they walk into the real estate agent, I just couldn't take my father's word for everything that happened, especially about the pack of wolves that were in the corner that attacked him. So, so I called up uh, 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 the, one of the lawyers who was involved in the case, tracked him down, 84-year-old man named Arthur Lessman. And I said, Arthur, I said, why, why did you, this young man at the beginning of your legal career, he was a young Christian man who was a partner with a young Jewish man named Leo. Why would you guys, when you're struggling to make it, when every hour you can bill is going to be the difference between you being able to, to, to afford your, your, your mortgage, why would you take so much time to help black families trying to move into Harrington Park? And he said to me, Corey, I remember the day Leo and I had the conversation. It was a Monday. And I was like, this 84-year-old man sure has a great memory. 
that he remembers it's a Monday. So I had to ask, what do you mean you remember it's a Monday? And he basically said to me that, Corey, I knew it was a Monday because I came to the Leo and I said, we got to go to Alabama. And he's like, what do you mean? He goes, we got to go to Alabama. And then we both laughed because we knew we couldn't afford to go to Alabama. And the reason why we want to go to Alabama is because that Monday was the Monday after the Sunday that was Bloody Sunday. He, he had seen these marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and it so affected him that they wanted to go to Alabama, but they knew they couldn't afford to. So what did they do? They said, we are going to do the best we can with what we have, where we are. And they decided to call civil rights organizations in New Jersey and found the Fair Housing Council. And a little bit later, they got a case file for a couple trying to move in named Carrie and Carolyn Booker, my parents. Now, I don't know if some of those marchers on that bridge, whose names I don't know, only a few of them I know, I don't know if they knew that instantaneously their act of love and courage instantaneously would change the destiny and course of two men in New Jersey who, because of that inspiration, would then represent African-American families and literally change the destiny of children yet unborn. I am who I am today because of that chain of events. Those are spiritual bounds that are incredibly powerful. Alice Walker says the most common way we give up our power is not realizing we have it in the first place. And when we act in a spiritual way in accordance to our highest values, we create transformative change. Those people who put money in the collection plate to unlock my dad's ability to go to college, what is the ROI on that? Can you measure that the impact of that kindness over time? And so this is what gets me. It is that we often allow our inability to do everything in the world undermine our determination to do something. We underestimate our ability to make a difference in the world. We are comfortable, and I am one of those people, I sometimes get so caught up in a state of sedentary agitation. When I'm angry at the world for not living up to my expectations, I'm quick to judge and point fingers at, at, at the folks that are in the arena and what they're doing. And I don't think to myself, well, wait a minute, I am a powerful person that right now, today, I could do something to change the temperature, to change the climate, to unlock spiritual cords that resonate into history. I, I tell you this right now. My, my father led me to understand in life that the biggest thing you can do in any day is often, most often, a small act of kindness, decency, or love. I, I learned from, from parents that, that this is what the power we have. My dad would say, son, there's two ways to go through life. You could be a thermostat or a thermometer. A thermometer is one of those folks that just reflects the world around him. If everybody's upset, you get upset. If you go to work and everybody's complaining about something, you join in and complain. If you're on the crowded plane trying to fight for carry-on space and everybody around you is frustrated and tired, you reflect that. But a, thermo a thermostat is one of those people who sets the temperature, who they generate something inside themselves that says, no matter what I face, I'm going to bring my best into this world. Now, I say this, but it's hard. And, and I talk a lot in the book about my failures to live up to my own vision of what we need in this world. Look, I, I, when I was a law student, 
I made the decision to follow the calling of a great American prophet. Now, I know many of you who've gone to rarefied institutions, you probably studied this incredible prophet of America. Um, his name is Chris Rock. And, and, and Chris Rock says, why is it often the most violent street in many cities is named after the man who stood for nonviolence? And I decide to move on to Martin Luther King Boulevard in Newark. Now, to be fair, it is a spectacular street with great, great testimony to the greatness of my city. But the south end of that street during the mid-1990s was rough. And I decided to move on this because I'm charged up. Now, I'd worked everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto, California. I'd worked in tough cities before. But when I landed on that street, one of the, one of the most, most difficult streets in America with drug dealing rife like nothing I'd seen before, punctuated by violence. I moved into a boarding house next to an abandoned building being used for drugs. I was intimidated. I thought I had outkicked my coverage, so to speak. And, and, and as I was moving my stuff in, I had my best friend from fourth grade, this guy who's like six foot eight, former Rutgers football player, big, big, big man. He and I were moving our stuff in and I, we came back to my car and my stuff was stolen. Welcome to the block. And I look across the street and I see through my eyes, remember I'm saying this, I see through my eyes the guys across the street that I assume were dealing the drugs and I just felt they were menacing. And we looked at each other as big as we were and we just went about our business. We didn't call the police, we just let it go. Now, now this was my first days and I, I found out that there was a tenant president on, on the fifth floor of Brick Towers, the projects across the street. And everybody said, if you're gonna do anything in that neighborhood, you gotta find her. So after cutting through the drug dealers, having some problems that I write about there, I go find this woman and she, I, she opens the door. Now I'm feeling like John Wayne, okay? I am Cory Booker, Yale Law student. I felt like I just rode in on a horse. I'm here to save the town, little Philly. I think I called her little Philly. <laughs> I'm here to help you, ma'am. <laughs> and she looks at me like she could not be bothered. I throw my resume in front of her and she's like, eh. And, and, and she's let me come in. I sat down and I'm telling her all my plans, all my vision. And she's barely looking up from her paperwork and what she's doing. When the phone rings, she doesn't even say, excuse me. She just picks up the phone, keeps talking. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is the toughest interview I've ever had. I'm failing an interview and in my arrogance, I'm like, I don't fail interviews but she seemed like she had no, no business with. So finally, she decides to do something with me. She takes me down to the middle of Martin Luther King Boulevard. I, and I follow after her she calls me, we go down the elevator, through the courtyard, into the street, and she turns around and she goes, you need to tell me something. I go, what? She goes, describe the neighborhood. I wanna hear you, if you wanna help me, you gotta describe the neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, and I said, I see a crack house, I see, the project, I just described what I saw. The more I talked, the more she seemed upset with me. And then finally, when I finished, she just says, I'm sorry, you can't help me. And she turns around and starts marching to the, to the buildings. And I run after her and I grab her very respectfully and, 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 and say, what are you talking about? I'm now so confused. And then she looks at me hard and this is what she said. She said, boy, you need to understand something. That the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of these people who only sees problems and darkness and despair, that's all there's ever gonna be. But if you're one of those stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, 
You see hope, possibility. You see love. You see the face of God. Then you can be one of those people who helps me. And she turns around, leaving me there, standing on the street corner, looking at my feet, thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus ended the lesson. Now, I went back to Miss Jones with a lot more humility than I approached the first time, not with, I'm going to try to save the world, but sitting down and saying, here is my elder, who's been the tenant president of these buildings since 1969, and I'm going to come and learn and see whatever I can do to help. And she slowly let me sit through meetings, and next thing you know, she has me doing menial work, carrying you know, juice boxes to, for, for, for events and putting up flyers. I graduate from law school, and before I know it, I'm doing legal work with her. We're taking on the slumlord. But the more I watch this woman, the more I see is that she did not have eyes that brought with them preconceived notions about other people. She had eyes that always looked for love. Now, I'm not saying that she wasn't tough, she, 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 that she couldn't be rough. But what I began to learn when I saw people lining up at her door sometimes to talk to her, to come in for help, I saw that she had a reservoir of love for anybody that came into those buildings. And these buildings were rough. I eventually moved into them. We had, we had heat and hot water that was intermittent. We had elevators would always break down. We had uh, uh, people passing out in the stairwells, which often didn't have lights. We had uh, roach infestations, and it was tough living. We were fighting a real fight, but what was powerful to me was what she taught me about the power of vision to transform a reality. Now, it, it often bothers me that that's how we treat each other sometimes. We turn off real quick if we hear somebody even is of a different political party than us. We project onto people every day based upon little bits of information. Uh, and I found in my life, I, I could often not get things done if I started with that presumption. In politics, I see it every day. You know, I became mayor of Newark, New Jersey, and then soon my city, like yours, you know, when the country's got a recession, urban places get a depression. Suddenly I was dealing with the worst economy of my lifetime, just as our state elects, I don't know if you ever know who our governor is, but we elected a, a Republican governor. And now I have a choice to make. Do I see an adversary? Do I see a, a, somebody who has a very different policy agenda than I do? Or can I try to transform this reality by working with him, seeing his humanity, and trying to find things we could work on together. And so we could talk about this more in the political context and some of the experiences that I've had, but I keep telling people over and over again that you can't expect the world to change or politics to change if you're not willing to. And you can't underestimate your ability to shape the course of human events because as my parents would teach me, this is not the great man history of America. This that we think that these great leaders from George Washington to 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 Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther just descended upon us and led us to freedom. My parents didn't believe in that. They believed that we are a nation who we are because of ordinary people who were willing to do extraordinary acts of kindness, decency, and love. Now I want to get to the to the conversation here, but I would be lying to you if I did not tell you. Uh, that this is the harder road to, to try to live courageous empathy, 
to try to overcome and leap the walls that divide us. And we have so many walls in this country that, that, are, that are perfectly designed so that we don't see each other. The fact that we're here in 2016 and we don't understand that Americans are struggling with mental health issues at rates that we don't seem to realize, that Americans are struggling with poverty at rates that we don't really realize, the fact that we people are struggling with addiction, depression. I, 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 I go on social media a lot, and I know I've been talking to a lot of people that are here, and I, and I try to push kindness out, not as a message to people who might be following me, but to remind myself of things like, be kind to one another because we're all more fragile than we let on. I, I just am a big believer that we need to figure out ways to break down walls, to see each other, and know that in the end, we as a country manifest our greatness not by what happens in halls of power, but what happens in the most humble places. Two of my heroes, Brian Stevenson and Nelson Mandela have, and 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 even James Baldwin all have quotes about this to the extent they say, if you want to see the truth about a country, don't go to their walls of halls of power, go to their prisons. We are a country that is it's shameful. It's we have a cancer on the soul of our country on how we treat each other. And our prisons are evident of that because we're a nation, first of all, we're the nation of the incarceration nation. We have 5% of the globe's population, but one out of every four incarcerated people on the planet Earth are in America, the land of the free. And, and we love self-inflicted wounds because we are a nation that would have 20% less poverty in this country, which means 20% more economic productivity. We'd have 20% less poverty if our incarceration rates were just the same as other nations. And we have a self-inflicted wound because during my lifetime, from 1980 to now, the, the prison population in America has gone up 500%. The, prison, the federal prison population has gone up 800%. And what people don't realize is that as this has been going up, the imprisoning people, what's been going down is our investments as a society in things that we all care about, public universities or roads and bridges and tunnels and infrastructure, but we've been spending trillions of dollars that other countries aren't because they don't incarcerate like we do. In fact, between 1990 and 2006, we were building a new prison in this country every 11 or 12 days. And, and if that isn't bad enough for all the fiscal conservatives who believe that we should invest money in things that grow our economy and not things that are actually hurt our economy. If that's not bad enough, we have a nation right now that who we incarcerate. One of my favorite poems is on the arm of a woman who sits right off the coast of New Jersey, Statue of Liberty. And if you read that poem, who she talks about, give me your tired, your hungry, your poor, wretched refuse of your teeming shore, the tempest tossed. It's almost as if you could say those people and then say at the very bottom of us, give me those people because that's exactly who we're going to imprison. Because our prisons are overwhelmingly, and by the way, I keep saying prisons, jails have nine times the admissions than prisons do. Most of the people there haven't even had their trial yet. Most of the people we put in there, we destabilize their lives because we have a country, as Brian Stevenson says, that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And so, 
And so if you go to our prisons and jails, you see well over 70% of the people are poor. You see that, that a large percentage of them have addictions or mental health challenges. And then we do things to them that trigger mental health challenges. What other countries and human rights organizations here call torture, like putting children and adults in solitary confinement. And then when they get out, we wonder why there's 75% recidivism rates. As a mayor, I saw this. We were actually making our communities more violent because we take young men who have many times just done things that the last two presidents have been have admitted to doing. Please understand, these are guys that, that, that talked about doing not marijuana, felony possession of, of certain drugs. We take them and say, now that you have an arrest record, and by the way, you don't even need a conviction in America. In most states in America, you can be legally discriminated against, denied jobs, housing, if you just have an arrest record, even if your charges were clear. Now you come out of prison, if you've been convicted, you now face, according to the American Bar Association, 40,000 collateral consequences. Most states, you can't get food stamps. Want to go to college? Sorry, you can't get a Pell Grant. You, 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 you can't vote in a jury. You can't get business licenses. You can't get jobs. And, and the tragedy of it all is it all has a profoundly significant, statistically significant racial bias. Where if you, there's no difference in America between blacks and whites and Latinos for using drugs or dealing drugs, none. But if you are African-American, you are about, you're going to get arrested 3.7 times more likely for, for drug crimes. Latinos twice as much. And I know it because I grew up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an all-white community, majority white community. I went to college at places like Stanford and Yale. And let me tell you, my, 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 my school president hates when I say this, but I saw a lot of drugs at Stanford. <laughs> Lots of drugs. And, and people don't understand that they don't stop and frisk people at Stanford University coming home. They're not raiding dorms there. They're not setting up FBI stings to bring down the drug ring at Stanford and there's drug rings on campuses because people are buying pot from other people or ecstasy or, or even just things like Adderall. And so my point is this. We've created a system that now has more people in prison for nonviolent crimes in America than all the people in prison in 1975. We now have a, a reality where the racial disparities or incarceration are so dramatic that we're really taking entire communities and corral corralling the African-American or Latino men. And I say men with some trepidation because what we're doing to women now with a sexual assault to prison pipeline that is astonishing is a, a sin on our country. Thank you, sister. So I want to say this right now. The challenge comes back to us. And this is how I want to end. What are we going to do? I, I, I admit in this book a lot of my failures, and let me end with one. I'm living in Brick Towers, Mrs. Jones's protege. And, and I'm now there for eight years. In 2002, I run for mayor of the city of Newark, and I lost. And for any young person here, a great piece of advice I always have is, if you're going to have a spectacular failure in your life, 
have a documentary team there to capture it because um, <laughs> made for a great movie, <laughs> won the Tribeca Film Festival audience. It got nominated for an Academy Award, my, my loss. And then, of course, th it could have been redemption, but then the film loses to a movie called March of the Penguins, for crying out loud. <laughs> I'm, I'm a vegan. I have to tell you, I'm a vegan, but now I make an exception for penguin meat. Flightless rodents. <laughs> so it is, it is after the, the mayor's loss in 2002, the next election is in 2006, and, and, and things get bad in Brick Towers because we had beaten the slumlord. The slumlord got convicted in federal court. HUD came in and took over the buildings, invested money in trying to upkeep them. But when I lost the mayor's race, the city's mayor, through the housing authority, wanted to take over the buildings, and they did. And then everything went downhill because they stopped investing like HUD was. And I was it was a long, frustrating four years, in the middle of it, the nadir, the low point between the two elections. It's 2004, and my father is visiting me, and I tell you, it, it was a, a joyous thing. And, and I tell you, I used to come home to my lobby, and I watched these kids grow up, and it, it's, it's amazing that I'd see these kids growing up. And, 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 and they were in my lobby, I'd play with them, have fun, I'd play basketball, I'd, Simon Says... But as it got closer and closer to 2006, I started noticing things that were going wrong. I would come into the, the lobby of my building and it would smell like things I had smelled at Stanford. I smelled marijuana. And I started seeing some uh, uh, gang tags on the walls. And I'm telling you this right now, I knew that the boys in my lobby did not have the margin of error that my high school friends did that did a lot of similar things. And so I tried to intervene. And, and I, I started talking to them more and said, guys, we only talk at night when I come home. We should go out and do something. I tell you, well, let's go to the movie, whatever movie you want to see. And I thought they wanted to go see, when they told me the name of the movie, I thought it was like a home improvement movie because they wanted to go see Saw 2. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. But I took them to the diner and we hung out. And I started bringing friends of mine who had been involved in the drug trade and gotten out were able to resurrect their lives or turn their lives around. I thought that this was a positive thing, but then it happened. The mayor's race started getting close and suddenly I was too busy to continue the mentoring relationship because, hey, I'm doing something so important. I'm running for mayor now. And this is gonna have to wait because when I'm mayor, I'll be able to help so many children. And so I started getting busy running letting go of all the things I was trying to do with these kids that still were there every night I would come home. And I'll tell you this, the, 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 the reality is they were good to me. They, they were lifting me up long days of campaigning. I would come home and they would joke with me and tease. They would tell me they had my back. We're going to get everybody to vote for you. One night I come home and they have these lawn signs holding them up like they performed like a parade line and I'm walking down going like this as I go to the elevator I get on the elevator they're cheering me booker booker and and the doors close I'm smiling until I think to myself where they get those lawn signs from <laughs> I become mayor I get the brass ring I have reached the pinnacle of my aspirations something I dreamed about for years I had achieved at the big moment won the big election 
and now a mayor of the city, but instantaneously we get warned by the FBI that there are death threats. And so they surround me with police officers when I'm still mayor-elect. Now police are stationed at Brick Towers, the safest we ever had in the community. But, but you all know this. I don't care what age. You remember when you were a teenager, you don't necessarily like hanging out where their police officers hanging out. So the kids weren't in the lobby anymore, but I barely noticed because I'm now the mayor. I've got responsibilities. I've got work to do. And I'm running 24-7, coming home to steal two or three nights, hours of sleep. And I'm going around the city giving street corner sermons when there's shooting, standing on the street corner, letting folks know we're better than this. We're going to rise above this. This is not who we are. Weeks into my mayorality, it was August. I got elected in July. I show up at a street corner, body on the ground covered, another one being put in the ambulance. I get a quick report from the police. I don't even pause to recognize the humanity on the ground murdered. I go right to the senior citizens. It was in front of a senior citizen building and start ministering to the living. But that night, I go home, and I'm slipping through my BlackBerry. And I see the name on the police report of the kid that was murdered on that street corner. His name was Hassan Washington, the leader, charismatic, beautiful, strong, funny, the guy that reminded me of my dad from my lobby was a kid who was killed. the chapter of this book, it's called Fathers and Sons because I trace his dad and my dad and look at the powerful similarities between our lives and how my father had a conspiracy of love that saved his life. I start the chapter of, at the moment where I'm going to his funeral and there's an inner city funeral home, Perry's funeral home, and I'm walking to the one room they have in the basement. I used to hate going down there because these narrow steps, it feels like you're walking into the bowels of a boat. And there we were, chained to each other in grief, piled on top of each other in this crowded room, moaning and groaning, looking at an all-too-familiar American reality, another boy in a box. And I was the newly minted mayor in this powerful position, but I felt no power. I felt no esteem. I felt shame as I stood in the back of that room. I didn't do the mayoral thing, shaking hands. Other people were coming over to me to hug me, and I was leaning on their light. But eventually I couldn't take it. I, I, I ran out of that place, up the stairs, into my new fancy SUV, told the police officer to take me to City Hall. I ran to City Hall up the steps, didn't want to take the elevator and possibly have to look another person in the eye. I get into the mayor's office, I slam the door, I sit on the couch, and I put my hands in my head, and for the first time, as a mayor of the city of Newark, I wept in my office. And all I could think is how crowded that room was. We were all there for that kid's life, death. But where were we for his life? That God had literally put him right in front of me. But I was so busy chasing after the big thing, so busy going about my goals and ambitions that I forgot the power of human kindness. Now, I confess in this book that this is not the only child to die. 
It's something that I, I can't help but talk about and write about, but I want to leave you with what Miss Jones said to me when I was at the nadir of my being, so angry at this country that we're allowing such carnage to happen, angry at a nation with such incredible traditions that united us in causes bigger than ourselves, but here we have crises around our country from toxic realities that I write about in my book, and then Flint happens, and I'm telling you, Flint, Michigan is not an anomaly. The toxicity of our country, the poisoning of our children is routine. I talk about these things, but here I was at this moment, broken, coming out of my building, angry, and as I walked through the lobby of my building, I remembered that Miss Jones's son before I ever showed up on the scene in Newark in 1980, was murdered in the lobby of that building. And I remembered that she never left. She made enough money that she could have moved away, started life anew, forgotten about the pain, but she stayed there. And as I walked through the lobby early one morning, brokenhearted, I promise you, if you live lives of tolerance, that is safe. If you live life of tolerance, you don't put your heart out there. Love is a harder way to go, and if you live lives of courageous love, you will unlock possibility, you will unlock spirit, you will create transformation, but I promise you, you'll also get your heart broken. Here I was, brokenhearted, walking through that lobby into the courtyard, and there was one other person in that courtyard. Her back was turned to me, and I stopped as soon as I saw it. It was Miss Jones. As I stood there and I looked at this woman, feeling like I was 100 feet underwater and she was a light in a night sky. As I looked up, she turns around and sees me and she knew the pain I was going through. Alone in that courtyard early in the morning, she said no words at first. All she did was open her arms. I am six foot three. She is just five feet tall, elderly woman. She throws open her arms and I scurried to her like a little boy and felt like I disappeared as her arms enveloped me. And then she said two words. She rubbed my back. She repeated two words over and over again as I broke and sobbed into her shoulder. The two words she said over and over again is stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. As I conclude and open up for your questions, I just want you all to know I don't have to remind you who we are as a people. I don't have to remind you how we got here and where we come from. I don't have to remind you of what our higher angels say and what the seduction of celebrity and scorn and demeaning and caustic rhetoric is. We know the truth and the light and the hope. We know the way forward, and it's not necessarily about pie in the sky when you're gone. It's not about some religious perspective. It is about a way of living that has united our people for a long time, having faith in our ideals and faith in each other. If we stay faithful, I believe our nation will be more united. And then if we are united one to another, bonded in the understanding that we share an incontrovertible destiny, then we will have a nation whose glory is not behind us, but is ahead of us and still yet to come. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, you need this.
Thank you. Please, please, thank you. Thank you. So, so there are two microphones here, and um, you already have one, so why don't we just jump in if you can. Much. We all loved what you said, and that's very inspiring. And I have brought you two little presents. One I gave to Senator Cardin. It's a list of ways to stop the violence in the school systems in Boston and to hate crimes. And he gave that to his legislative staff if you'd like a copy. I'm so grateful for that. I would like that. Okay. And the other is, after everybody's asked their questions and you have five minutes, I can share with you. I am a learning specialist, a clinician and researcher, and doing some really nice things. Um, if you give me five minutes, I can really show you ways to alleviate illiteracy, dyslexia, and Alzheimer's. Okay. Thank you very much. But I, I want to challenge one thing she said in her spirit of, of service and help. You know, I was in Chicago once at a time that um, Newark was having incredible experience in my first term, lowering violent crime. And somebody asked me, how do we stop violent crime? And I was like, you know what? I can speak about this, some things we did in strategies, but I would rather say this to you. I know data. When I was mayor, I used to say, in God we trust, but everybody else bring me data. And, and there's one intervention that we don't seem to do, even though the data tells us it's very powerful. And so I'll give you one example to stop juvenile crime. And they said, what? And I said, I've seen it work multiple times. And they're like, what? And I said, you know, if you went to every fourth grade teacher and asked them, who are the kids you're concerned about possibly getting in trouble? And then put that child with a mentor. One mentor, actually, the data shows pretty dramatically in the quality mentoring programs, drives down juvenile crime, drives up student achievement, drives down early unsafe sex practices, drives up self-esteem. But the problem with our country is that it is a collective action problem. Right now in America, I'm not exaggerating this number, there are tens of thousands of kids on waiting lists for mentors. It takes four hours a month to be a mentor, the amount of time that we spend watching our favorite TV shows. And I know here in Baltimore you like Jersey Shore, Jersey Licious, Real Housewives of New Jersey. But this goes to that point I'm trying to make. We Often we allow ourselves to, to let our inability to do everything undermine our determination to do something. And so my prayer for all of us is whatever we are concerned with is that we think to ourselves, what's one small thing I could be doing uh, to, to transform the problems that, that are before me? Please, let's go to the next question. Hi, my name is Anthony Williams. So, Anthony, I'm assuming that under your hat, you have the best shaved skull like me. There's no hair there. You are a fellow bald brother. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I'm not bald at all. No, damn, tag yeah. nabbit. Uh, Baltimore roughly spends $37 million on homeless services, you know, a year. And uh, uh, what happened was HUD uh, gave 100 additional vouchers to Baltimore City in December. I got one of those vouchers, which I'm proud of. Um, but there's still things that I think need to be addressed far as the shelters and the conditions of the shelters. I, I sleep on right now, um, you know, bad, you know, dirty mats every night over on Martin Street in a motel that's a homeless shelter. And uh, I am going to be leaving that shelter. I'm going in housing. You know, I, I got my voucher. I looked at my apartment and I am live a few blocks away from here. Once I move in after inspection and all that. And I just want you to give me your opinion of, do you think it's, it's, it's real that we can end homelessness in a matter of years, like all these different plans that they come up with? Now, I need your opinion on that. I, hold on. I need your name one more time. Anthony Williams. Anthony Williams. Yes. Mr. Williams, so 
you have to understand, I am a prisoner of hope. And I believe we have the capacity and the ability to end homelessness in, in America. So it's not a matter of can we, it's do we have the collective will. And I'm going to go a step further than that. Um, I try to visit uh, people that are doing good things on homelessness all around the country, especially when I was a mayor, and trying to learn from, from them. And your mayor here is somebody actually uh, who's a friend of mine who I've learned a lot from uh, through our friendship. But I was out in Seattle, Washington, and uh, visiting a, a, a group called the Plymouth Housing Group. And they were making an argument that now I use, and again, I love data, where they, they have a supportive housing program and where they looked at the costs of homelessness to taxpayers in their city in Seattle versus the cost of supportive housing. And they just ran the numbers. And they actually found out it cost their city so much more to have people on the streets than it did for the cost of supporting housing. Why? Because one of the biggest costs was emergency room costs. You know, a lot of folks who might have diabetes and don't have it treated, uh, the injuries, victims of assault. And, and so what I've come to realize as um, a mayor and now as a legislator that I, most often the righteous thing to do is also the fiscally responsible thing to do. And so to allow homelessness to, to perpetuate is, again, a self-inflicted wound to the economic strength of our, of our country. And the last example of that I'll give you is just, you know, I, I saw this with, with not just homelessness, but even with children. One of the best ways to save a government dollar in America is something called nurse family partnerships, that when a mom is having a baby, an at-risk mother, and you have to have a nurse come home and visit with them regularly, it's amazing. The cost of hospital and medical costs go way down for that child. Not only that, but incarceration rates go way down for the child, um, uh, and their success rates go up. And so my hope is with voices like yours and voices like mine and, and a chorus of people beginning to say, hey... Let's begin to be a more enlightened society and make the investment in the greatest natural resource any country has in a global knowledge-based society is not oil, coal, or gas. It's the genius of its people. And the more we invest in each other, the more our economy will grow in a long time. Mr. Williams, I wish you the best, sir. Thank you. I feel bad. Like it's a, we're, we're prejudiced against the people in the back of the room. We're going to get back there? You going back, man? You going long? Oh, okay. Mr. Booker, first I'd like to say welcome to Baltimore. It's good to be back in Baltimore. Thank you. Yes. Um, I would like to suggest something to you, and this is no pun intended, but if you were elected president... <laughs> need I say any more? Um, I will tell you unequivocally, um, depending on the outcome of this election, um, that I might not, uh, I can't say anything about running for the president, but depending on the outcome of this election, I might be running from the president. Um, um, and, 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 and the one thing I would say to this great city um, is, is simply this. Um, re please always remember that the power of the people is greater than the people in power. And, and the best example I have of this, the best example I have of this is, you know, when in 2008, when I went to go vote for president, um, it was November 2008, I went up to the, my polling site, and there was a line wrapped around the building. And I'll tell you right now, 
uh, um, I know you. I know how you genteel uh, and sweet the, you, the city is to your elected leaders. I mean, you give them cavities, I'm sure. But in Newark, we keep it real, you know. And I get up on the end of the line, and I know in Baltimore, when the elected leader came up, you guys were always oh, nice to see you, Senator. Nice to see you, Mayor. It was a historic day here, 2008. But not Newark. I go to the end of the line in Newark, and the woman looks at me as I walk up, and I got p- police with me. I rolled deep, and and. And she looks at me and she goes, don't you think you're cutting in this line now? (laughs) I don't care who you are. (laughs) You ain't special. You're waiting like the rest of us. And, of course, my phone gets blown up. You know, my staff is like, where are you? It's been an hour. How long is it? And I just yell at my staff. I'm like, I'm not special. I'm waiting like everybody else. (laughs) One year later, one year later, is the gubernatorial elections in New Jersey, and I show up to vote, and nobody is there. I walk right in, and I see the poll worker there, and I hug her because she looked lonely. And then we there was an election, and Chris Christie won, and, and the Democrat lost. And the reason I bring this up is not for any partisan reason, but just what people said to me in the months after. This is what people said to me. They said, hey, they're cutting the earned income tax credit, after pledges not to raise taxes, they're cutting their income. Why are they doing this to us? People said to me, they're cutting funding for Planned Parenthood, which we had to close doors in New Jersey. And the people were asking me, why are they doing this to us? They're pulling out of regional greenhouse gas agreements. And this is, again, what I write about in the book about the toxicity of our country for children. The number one reason why kids miss school in America, asthma. Um, why, why are they doing that to us? They're cutting money to cities. Every major city in New Jersey had to cut back on police. And I had to look at people time and time again and say, they didn't do this to us. We, we did it to ourselves because of our lack of engagement. King said so eloquently. Um, you can... King said so eloquently what we will have to repent for in our day and age is not the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and indifference of the good people. And so I, I really um, find questions like this flattering. I wish I could record them, and, and I'll give you my mom's number. Would you tell her that? But I just want to say that we should never wait on a, on a president to deliver us. Um, when we have that power ourselves, what we should be doing is trying to wake up the consciousness and the engagement of others. And I'll tell you this. I, and again, I'm not trying to be – actually, I'm trying to be controversial. I, I, I watched how young protesters – this election season, uh, an organization of young people called Black Lives Matter, and how they, they, they forced their issues through creative protest, they expanded the consciousness of others. Now, I, I, I'm not, uh, not going to get into the presidential politics, but I remember them going up and taking microphones from candidates and people getting angry. Oh, they disrespected Senator Sanders, who's a friend of mine. Well, look, Senator Sanders has a state that has 1% African Americans, barely, but the prison population is... 11% black. And, and so we should be talking about these things, and we have the ability to change the national conversation if we were just willing to engage and use it. So thank you. I want to talk about incarceration yes. and drug addiction yes. and mental health. Yes. I have worked in the penal system in New Mexico. Oh, God bless you. And that was one of the penitentiaries that's on the level of Attica. This was some years ago. And what I can tell you about my experience as a mental health worker, one of the things that's needed, and Dr. Wynn knows this, is that you have the power to get monies 
as you go along in your political life yes. so that we can begin to free the many people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, especially those who are incarcerated because eventually they come back out into the community. And if we don't have therapeutic communities inside of the prisons yes. and outside of the prisons, then it doesn't mean anything so, and they so all I will die. Applaud, I will applaud that. And I will say to you, the last thing I will say to you is that on this issue, because I live it, I go home when I finish a week in D.C. to, to my city. Um, I can I rarely use this word as promise because I think politicians throw that word around. But I promise you that this issue, all the issues of mass incarceration, you will see me going to the mat on these issues. You will see me going to the mat for these to, to make this change. Senator, thanks for being here today. Um, I just wanted to ask you, so... Can you tell me your name, please? My name is David. David. Um, so I know Mark Zuckerberg donated $100 million to Newark while you were mayor, and I, I know that that money was spent seemingly with the best of intentions. And so, and it, you know, the results, I guess by all accounts, were kind of mixed. So I was just wondering kind of what you thought the lessons were from that for education reform and also just, you know, as far as your political education yourself. Right. So, so I, I, and I'd love to hear afterwards, if you come up to me and whisper in my ear, because I hear this every once in a while that the results were mixed. And I want to know <laughs> where are people finding that out? Because the data shows a dramatic change in Newark school system. In the seven years that I was mayor, if you were not, our city's majority African-American, uh, and the, the African-American kids tend to be in the poorer, lower-performing schools. So in, my, in the seven years I was mayor, because of the help of people like Mark Zuckerberg and other philanthropists, because remember, it's a matching grant. If you, and I don't know if other cities that have achieved this, if you were a black kid in Newark, your chances of going to a high-performing school went up 200%. The number of our, of our high-performing schools proliferated so much that we, after a study of 50 school systems in America, Newark was ranked number one in the country for what they call beat-the-odds schools, high poverty, high performance. Brookings Institution uh, ranked Newark the number three school in the country for empowering parents with public school choice, quality public school choices. Across the board, other data, our graduation rate went up double-digit percentages. This is a big one for me on the school-to-prison pipeline. The suspension, out-of-school suspensions went down in a statistically significant way. So to have very small amount of money, because we have a, our school system spends a billion dollars every year. This was $100 million over five years. So very small percentage. We were able to leverage some pretty dramatic change in a very short period of time. Now, it may not have been miracles we still have work to do, but the leaps in achievement in our city are measurable, and that's the data that, that backs it up. Thank you. Senator Booker, we only have time for one more question because the senator is going to be signing books behind. I'm sorry. So this will have to be our last. Okay. I, I want to say thank you for being here because you provided something of an antidote to the sad and fear-inspiring and, dare I say, maybe even neo-fascist rhetoric that's coming from one political stage over the last few weeks and months. So thank you for giving us a vision and a message of hope. Um, I, I'm an educator here in Baltimore, Thank you. and we have all of the problems in education in Baltimore City of any city around the country, and you know them because they've all been there in Newark, and I think the negative perspective is from Dale Russikoff's book, The Prize. Right. No, I, uh, um, right. So I won't re-ask that question, but I will ask you to say something about what's the other antidote going to be to keep us all inspired so that we can work against the rhetoric that we're hearing that frankly, I know from my school kids, 
scares kids, let alone the adults. Right. No, I appreciate you saying that because it was frustrating for me that one reporter came in with a certain perspective, didn't put data in their book, but just told a lot of a narrative and didn't let facts in to compete with the narrative that, and perspective that they had. But that, it was a lesson to me, by the way, because anything that you do, you're going to get criticism for, but you should do it anyway. And so I, I just want to just conclude by saying that the antidote um, for that is a spirit of uh, unyielding spirit of of being hopeful yourself. If you want more kindness in the world, you got to be more kind. If you want more uh, leadership in the world, you've got to lead. And if you got to want more hope, you've got to be a generation of hope. And at risk of at risk of never being invited back again, I will conclude with a story that sounds small, but it's just to give you an example of what I'm talking about. When I was um, a young man, I played football at Stanford. As I often joke, I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards. And so I, I, I got a football scholarship. I got a football scholarship to Stanford, and I would fly this cross-country trip for six hours. Now I'm a very big guy, and um, sitting in in these seats was just was always very uncomfortable for me. And especially back then, if you could if you could close your eyes for a minute and just picture me. Back then, I was chiseled, too. Now I just jiggle. But then I was like this, I was this chiseled big football player. And so I tell you the story because I got on this plane, and it was packed and um, just crowded. And everybody was just like knew this was just, they were settling in for a long flight. The door to the plane closed. Every seat was taken except for next to me, this young uh, uh, college student. I had the whole row open. And I came to the only conclusion that I that, that you probably could understand I could come to, which was obviously God loved me more than all of these other people. And so there I was sitting back there with this smug joy, looking around at the other poor people as I spread my legs out to the side, enjoying the hectares of space that I had. And, and, and then suddenly the door opens to the plane, and the plane fills with this cacophonous screaming, like we thought, who could be assaulted out there? And then, uh, as everybody stopped talking with silence in the, in the cabin, we're all looking at what is going to enter that door. And then entering that door was this three-headed figure of a woman with a, a, a young boy and a baby. And it was as if somebody had plugged a new, uh, it was like a nuclear power speaker, basically. I don't know why that child was one part everything else and 99% like lung. And, and, and everybody sort of stops and, and is staring at the woman. And then like, it's like one of those few times you could read everybody's mind because all the heads turn to me in the open seats. And I could tell everybody's thinking to themselves, you smug little man, <laughs> it serves you right. And, and so she walks over to me and it's the only row there. And they say there's no such thing as stupid questions, but I, this is, I'm sorry, there are. And this is one of the stupid questions I've ever, I've asked in my life because she goes over there and she said, sir, I'm sitting here. And I looked up at her innocently and I said, are you sure? <laughs> and, and, and so she, she comes onto my seats. She sits down, the young boy between me, her and, and the woofer and tweeter. Um, I'm sitting there. And I'm just like, this, this is going to be the worst flight of my life. And then somehow I had an evolved thought. You, 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 know, you know, we have a choice to make every moment of our lives, to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. And I thought to myself, I could either surrender to this moment 
And, and, and to me, that's what cynicism is. It's just surrendering to what is, thinking you can do nothing about it. I say that cynicism is a refuge for cowards. Or I could show courageous empathy, courageous love, and try to say that this is going to be the decide in my mind, like Ms. Jones would later teach me, that this is an opportunity for me to make this the best flight I've ever had. And I decide, I get the gumption that I'm going to make this the best flight I've ever had. And so I turn to this woman and I begin talking to her. And the second I get out of my own drama and my own self-absorbed pain and plug into her, I realize, oh my gosh, this poor woman has everybody at the plane looking at her angrily as if she somehow told her baby to start crying at the top of her lungs. And so we start talking. I'm making all kind of contorted faces at the child. Um, the baby stops crying. We take off. I start talking to the young man. We start playing tic-tac-toe. I still remember the movie Glory came on with Denzel Washington. She said she had never seen, hadn't been to a movie for years. I'm saying, watch the movie. Hold your baby. Your, your son and I are going to continue to play games. The movie starts. She puts on the earphones. And I seize the opportunity to tell that child all the jokes I know that are appropriate for an eight-year-old. And I've got material like you wouldn't believe. Like, why did Tigger and Eeyore have their heads in the toilet? Because they were looking for poo. Um, I'm sorry. I had to get that out. I had held that all night. And so this was the quickest flight I had ever taken. I was having a blast by the end. She was feeling good. And it was making me feel good that she was feeling good. She loved the movie. She wept like I did when she saw it. We land, we exchange addresses, information. My mood is great getting off that plane. We, ne we say we were going to keep in touch. We never keep in touch. Five years pass, 10 years pass, a long time passes. And now I'm a city councilman in Newark, New Jersey, gearing up to run against Mayor Sharp James in this spectacular failure that becomes a documentary that loses to March of the Damn Penguins. Um, and so I'm in my one of my lowest moments. I mean, I've really been being, being beat down by circumstances. You'll read in the book, I mean, I have my phones tapped. I, I'm getting my car ticketed everywhere I park. I'm being followed by the police. Uh, um, I'm just down, feeling frustrated. And I get this letter in the mail saying, you may not remember me, but I saw your name in the paper and I met you, you know, a decade ago on a plane. And I thought this was going, this was my first time ever flying with my kids. And I thought it was going to be a horrible experience. Um, but then I had the, the blessing, the fortune to sit next to you. And she went on about what it meant to her and to her kids. And then she says, my family owns a factory in Newark. And we have a whole bunch of employees who we've told all about you. Would you come speak to them? The, some of the employees became activists in my campaign, taking me around to their neighborhoods. The young boy who I tortured with some of the worst jokes on the planet Earth became one of my best campaign volunteers. And then there's something, I don't know if you know this, but politicians like campaign contributions, and she became a big contributor to my campaign. And so this is, this is a truth that we must realize. It, it's, it goes to physics. I, I had the chance to, to, to go on Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I, I checked this with him because he is a thousand times smarter than me and probably the collective IQ of the entire United States Congress. And, and he said, he said, this is a brilliant genius of a man. And I wanted to check my facts with him. And I said to him, um, I look at lights in the sky at night. And if I'm correct, 
those are stars are millions and millions of light years away, and some of them have died out. Isn't that true? And he looks at me and he goes, it's absolutely true. But energy and light goes on in perpetuity. No, in fact, he says it's a matter of physics that energy is not wasted. Once it's generated, it'll go on forever. I'm here and you're here because of the courageous love of people who stormed beaches in Normandy, who boarded buses uh, knowing they would be bombed, who came as immigrants and knowing that they would never see the end to sweatshops and child labor, fought to organize unions when they would not only lose their livelihoods, but lose their lives. We are animated today, as my father would say, the physical manifestations of people who generated that conspiracy of love. And knowing that you have that kind of power, what do we do with it when every circumstance affords us an opportunity to do something to advance the cause that we claim we are convicted about? And I'm sorry, right now the temperature in this country, the dominant voices are crass, trying to convince our children that to be strong, you got to be mean. To be tough, you got to be cruel. Well, we have a choice. We can throw up our arms, get caught in that state of sedentary agitation, or begin to push back in every way we can on what we tweet, on what we text, on what we say, on how we treat the person that's next to us. And so this is the call, I think, that we have to decide. And I fail every single day. I, I fail at these things. But the key I've learned from being broken many times is that courage, what we need, is not that loud voice that yells into the, into, in the battle cry. Real courage is being disappointed, feeling a sense of shame for something you might have done wrong, feeling just tired. But it's that voice in your head that on the next new day, you're going to put your feet on the floor, you're going to stand up, get dressed, and get back out into this world for another day of loving. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Booker.